Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We are in the middle of the book, picking up the last half of it this semester together. And our subject tonight is relationships. That's where Paul begins when he turns to the second half of this book. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 this evening before we read that passage. I want to tell you about an interesting event that occurred at a recent Hollywood awards show. Uh, Something remarkable took place between Robert Downey Jr., he of Iron Man and Sherlock Holmes fame, and Mel Gibson of Sir William Wallace of Braveheart and others. Some of you would know those names, but... But Mel Gibson a few years ago had rather famously been arrested for drunk driving and been videoed uh, giving a rant against Jews and subsequently blacklisted from at least a lot of circles in Hollywood. So here's Robert Downey Jr. and Mel Gibson. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. has invited Gibson to be the presenter of an award that uh, Downey is receiving, and he did so to pay back Gibson for how Gibson had previously treated him. What makes it so interesting is that Downey himself had almost lost his career uh, because his life was so marred by drugs and alcohol. He'd spent so much time in prison in the mid-90s to late-90s. The substance abuse was so thick that he nearly lost everything. And, And now here's Mel Gibson now in similar trouble, arrested, alcoholism, might you know, have difficulty with his career. And Downey says he asked Gibson to give him the award because years before, Downey couldn't get sober and Mel told him not to give up hope and to find his faith in a religion that believed in forgiveness. Now here's Downey's words. And I couldn't get work, so Gibson cast me as the lead in a film that he had developed for himself. And he kept a roof over my head, and he kept food on the table, and most importantly, he told me that if I accepted responsibility for my wrongdoings, if I embraced that part of my soul that was ugly, hugging the cactus, he called it, he said that if I hugged the cactus long enough, I'd become a man of some humility, and that my life would take on a new meaning. And I did, and it worked, says Downey. All he asked in return was that someday I help the next guy in some small way. And he asked, and, and it's reasonable to assume, goes on Downey, that at the time he didn't know that the next guy would be him or that someday was tonight at this public venue. But I humbly ask you, says Downey, unless you are without sin, in which case you have picked the wrong industry, in forgiving my friend his trespasses, offering him the same clean slate you have me, and allowing him to continue his great and ongoing contribution to our collective art without shame. He hugged the cactus long enough, says Downey, and there were chuckles and hugs on and ch- chuckles by the crowd and hugs on stage. One broken actor was treated graciously and turned around and returned the kindness. And then he urges all the other actors to show grace to the broken as well. That is something like what we have now before us in Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. As Paul tells Christians how to live. Let me invite you to hear 
God's word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we pray that you would write this word on our heart. You would teach us to walk in your ways. And that even through this, we would see our Savior and rest in him. And by your power, become even more like him. We pray we need that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul begins here with what you would call the ethical section of the book. What do we do if we're Christians? What do we do if we've received good from God, blessing through Christ? And he says, basically, bear with one another in love. And then he says in verse 3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We'll look at that next week, verses 3 through 6. But tonight he says, bear with one another in love. He urges them to do this. And he begins with a therefore, and, and I want to set context. The therefore does that before we get into our outline and work through his teaching. The context is this. He begins with therefore. Any good Bible study question to ask when you see a therefore is, what is the therefore therefore? And it's there for an extremely important reason. It serves a vital function, just like in the book of Romans, if you know, at chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, therefore, and at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, therefore, and both of those therefores, just like this one, begin the ethical section of the book. How do we practically live out being Christians if that is what we are? Those therefores close In Romans chapters 1 to 11, in Colossians chapters 1 and 2, and in Ephesians here, chapters 1, 2, and 3, close what we would call the the doctrinal theological section of the book that lays the foundation for what we do. In other words, in light of what God has done for us, see all last semester, Ephesians 1 to 3, in light of that, and in light of his great love for us and power for us, this is how we're to live. Why is that so important? Friends, that word therefore, right there, between the two halves of Ephesians, describes for you, or or, or is an implication of all the significant difference between Christianity and every other religion you can think of. Any other philosophical way of life you can think of. All the other world religions and any other philosophy of human life and even all debased forms of Christianity basically reverse Paul's teaching. And take Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 first, and then put therefore, and then put Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. In other words, they will say something like this. Live for God. Live well for God. Try hard for God. And therefore, you will have every spiritual blessing in Christ. But the gospel is just the opposite. And so Paul is just the opposite. You have already, he says, received Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, they are already yours. 
I realize they haven't been consummated in the glory that awaits. You don't feel and taste them in a broken world, but they are already yours in Jesus. There is nothing God has withheld from you. Therefore, this then is how you live for him. In other words, he moves from exposition to exhortation. He moves from declaring things that are true to guiding you then in life. From the blessings we have to the responsibilities we are to carry out. This is the way it is. It's not one or the other. It's not blessings with no responsibilities. It's not, no, it's not responsibilities with no blessings. It's not one or the other. It's not either or. It is both and and in the proper order. That's vital. Martin Luther used to say that in his day, or said in his day that, If he taught a sermon that salvation consisted not in our works or life, but in the gift of God. Some men took occasion thence to to be slow to good works and to live a dishonest life. And if he preached of a godly and honest life, others did by and by attempt to build ladders for themselves into heaven. You see what he's getting at? We're, we're, we're always like this, men and women, boys and girls. We're always falling off on one side or the other. Always falling either in such a way that we take God's free grace as a justification for why we can do whatever we want to do, no matter how evil or ungodly it is. Or we begin to think of our obedience, trying to follow the Lord, as the ground upon which we stand to be right with God. And make our own performance our salvation. When it's not. It's the performance of Christ in your place on your behalf as a true human being. That sets you right with God. His is the only perfect performance. And so we've got to get these right. It has to be both and. And they have to be in the proper order. You can't have one without the other. I mean one without the other. Think of it this way. On the one hand, doctrine... Without application leads to, in a lot of people, well, you know, I'm right and you're wrong, so shut up already. Or, well, I'm right and you're wrong and because you're wrong and you won't get all your doctrine right with me just like I believe, well, then I'm justified in writing you off. That's why Paul warns you in 1 Corinthians that knowledge puffs up. And love builds up. It's always a danger to have only doctrine and not to live it. But on the other hand, to have only practical Christian living without the doctrinal foundation for it leads to all kinds of legalism in people's lives. Trying to save yourself by your works, wrong motivations for why you do what you do. You think you're earning points with God, you're not. You think you're building a ladder to climb into heaven and you're not. Or it leads to nitpickiness in the lives of others, expecting them to be just like you with with no room for them to grow and to mature because none of us have arrived at full spiritual maturity. No freedom for people. I was asked this week if I was as enthusiastic about preaching chapters 4, 5, and 6, the practical, as chapters 1, 2, and 3, the, the theological blessings. And I, I confess my preference is 1, 2, and 3. Uh, who doesn't like talking about the unsearchable riches of Christ and what we have in him? And I, I want to shy away from telling you what to do 
It seems easy to tell you what to believe. You'll believe it or not. But telling you what to do, that seems like meddling. But would you look at how... I was struck by this. I was rebuked by this. How zealous Paul is for this. He begins, I urge you. I beseech you. I beg you. I plead with you. He's as zealous for chapters 4, 5, and 6 as as he is zealous to praise God in 1, 2, and 3. It matters how we live. It matters to God how we live. There is a way of living that's appropriate to the gospel. And there's a way of living that's inappropriate to the gospel. And we are to learn to live in light of the gospel, even as we all have areas where we fail. And so he, he means to teach us here and, and by worthy, in a manner worthy of the gospel, by worthy, he doesn't mean you're meriting God's grace. It's already been given, one, two, and three. You're a Christian. He's talking about what's fitting, what's appropriate then. So I want to say, by way of context, and this is the longest introduction to which we haven't got to the points of the sermon yet. And all the visitors said, and we're never coming back. No. <laughs> Dear Christians, I want to say to you, this to you. If you have crossed over from death to life, and if you're a Christian, you have, and you've been created for good works to walk in them, and since you've been made part of the one new man that God is creating called the church, live that way and let the power of the gospel be on display in your life. That's what Paul is urging upon us. So then, here are our questions for tonight. what, What does it look like to live in our relationships with others in light of the gospel? What does it look like to live in our relationships with others in light of the gospel? And we want to look at three, I want to ask three questions of the passage to get at that. What does Paul assume in verses one and two? What does he specifically urge in verses one and two? And how are we supposed to do that? Those three questions. In the first place, what does he assume? Uh, Well, I think he assumes something here that he doesn't explicitly state. He assumes, if you're a Christian, that you're involved in the body of Christ and that you're having some kind of relationship with other Christians. He doesn't doesn't come out of the gate and say, well, now that you're a Christian, here's what you need to do. You need to go be part of the body of Christ. He assumes that you are. He's going to tell you how to live in that body. Uh, And so there's a sense in which he's already assuming, he's already assuming, and I realize people in our culture need to be told that, but he's already assuming that you have begun to rub shoulders with people in such a way that it has rubbed you wrong. That you have already found Christians to be frustrating to be around. He assumes there's some level of intimacy on your part with other believers, that there's both proximity and uh, at some level there's vulnerability. That, that you're around them proximately, but that you're also at some level vulnerable with one another so that you've gotten to know one another and even seen sometimes one another at their worst. He, he assumes you're not just darting in and out of a worship service and that's all church is to you. Now listen, uh, this is important. In the early days of Christianity, some people thought that the way to really live a good life for God was to get away from people as far as possible. Why? Why would anybody think that? Well, because people 
they thought to themselves, are at least part of the source of temptation, right? So people are the reason I get angry, or people are the reason I lust, we say to ourselves, or people are the reason I lie, and if there's nobody around to lie to, then there's no temptation to lie. That's what we say to ourselves. Well, Jerome went out in the wilderness, early church leader, to be by himself, trying to live as pure as he could as a hermit, away from people. And the problem he encountered was this. He went out into the wilderness, but he brought with him a thousand dancing girls who troubled his imagination. (laughs) What's he talking about? He's talking about all the dancing girls he'd seen in the Roman theaters. And he had brought them out into the wilderness in his heart and imagination. And he simply couldn't escape them. He couldn't escape the occasions for sin. He couldn't escape himself. Friends, it may be that there are people who are the occasion of your temptation, but they are not the cause of your temptation. Your own heart does that. There's no answer for you in isolation. You're with you. Jesus said, we're part of his body. We're part of a community. And they will know that you are my disciples by your love. Love within the body of Christ and for the body of Christ. Love among believers. But that's hard. C.S. Lewis said it this way. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, says Lewis, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and agitations of love is hell. To love is to be vulnerable. And it hurts. And he assumes that we're going to be at some level of intimacy with people who are going to be in a position to hurt us, that we're not holding everybody at arm's length. And so that's why I say, I think that's what he assumes. And then, so then what does he urge? Second thing, look what he urges. He urges towards the end of verse 2 that we bear with one another in love. That's what he's calling us to, bearing with one another in love. He calls us, the, the idea is to restrain ourselves. Restrain yourselves in reference to other people in love. Make space for one another, in other words, without always being ready to criticize. Put up with one another, he's saying. Look, there are all kinds of reasons you need to do this. We have in the church, I mean, this happens in families all the time, right? We live intimately and you can't escape. But in the church, it's true as well. We have all kinds of clashing personalities. Some people are bubbly, others are stoic, others are easygoing, and others are melancholy. Just rub one another the wrong way. We have different energy levels. Maybe you're an introvert, maybe he's an extrovert. You just can't stand all that energy. 
Or you get it a different way. We have different ideas in the church about family life, about movies and TV and school and time commitment and sports and how we live life. And we're at different stages of development as Christians moving towards spiritual maturity. But we're all at different stages of growth. We're in different places. Not to mention all the ways that we just hurt people by flat out sin. But these are all reasons why we need to sort of bear with one another. Put up with one another. Give space to one another. We restrain ourselves in love. I know, I know, I can hear somebody saying to Paul, Paul, you have no idea what you're asking me to do. Don't you know how hard this is? I'm having a hard time loving people. You're telling me to bear with this person and they rub me the wrong way all day long. I think Paul here even says to you, I know. I know what I'm asking you to do. Would you remember where I am? I, Paul. A prisoner for the Lord urge you to bear with people. And you know, you know what he's saying? I'm chained to a centurion all day long. He's under house arrest. He's in a, he's in a home that he rented. But he, he's not free to go wherever he wants to go. I think Paul would say to you, look, I've got things I'd like to do. People I'd like to be with, not this guy. But in God's providence, I am exactly where God wants me to be, living life where he wants me to live it. And it's hard. And I know it's hard. The one urging you is a prisoner for the Lord. I I understand. And listen, it's a reminder that Christian life is not easy. Living for God is not to be circumstantial. It's, It's not based on when it's convenient because life is easy and pleasant. To bear with one another involves suffering because of one another. Paul says, I'm suffering on behalf of the Lord. I'm suffering for you, for your well-being, dear Christian friends. You suffer for one another. That's what he's saying. And and I realize we've got to say immediately in saying all that, that we all fall short of this. That's why Paul's telling us to bear with one another, of course. Not only do we fall short of bearing with one another, but we fall short in every way. There is no perfectionism here. He has no expectation that Christians are going to arrive at sinlessness and be just thoroughly loving people. (laughs) That's why he tells you, you have to bear with people and they have to bear with you. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Uh, He says, with humility, gentleness, and patience. Now that's not point three of the sermon, but that's how do we bear with one another under point two of the sermon? He says, with all humility and with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. With humility, not arrogantly, not proudly. And it's so easy to see the pride of others and the reason we often get out of bent out of shape at others, not always. Sometimes we get bent out of shape at their pride because it bumps up into ours. And I think it was Lewis who said, when I'm mad that you are the center of attention in a large room, I'm mad because I think I should be the center of attention in that large room. See, my pride is bumped up against yours. Lewis again goes on to say, humility is not thinking little of yourself. It's not saying I'm just a worm and just a worm. You are made in the image of God. You are marred 
You are being restored after the image of Christ. You're filled with great dignity. Jesus died for you. You're worth a lot. But, and, and, and so Lewis says, humility is not thinking little of yourself. It's not that. It's not thinking of yourself at all. Humility by its very nature is outward and focused. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man that he would be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not always be telling you, of course, how he's nobody. Probably all you will think is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. He will not be thinking about his humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. He's thinking about you. He's thinking about you. That's what Paul is saying. Think about others. With humility and bear with them. There's a story of a brother in South China who had his rice field up on a hill. And uh, during the growing season, he used to hand hand work a water wheel to lift water up and flood his field. And then one night, the guy below him, who owned two fields below him, cracked a hole in his dike or what have you and drained all the water out onto his own fields. And this guy was incredibly distressed, of course, and so he labored hard to pump the water back up into his own field, and the stealing continued at least four times until he just was beside himself asking, what do I do? And and so he he wanted to be patient. He tried not to retaliate, but, but, but should I confront him, and what should I do? And so he prayed, and then one of them, one of the Christians he prayed with replied, if we only try to do the right thing, Surely we are very poor Christians. We have to do something more than what is right. And so being impressed with that advice, this Christian farmer the next day went out and pumped water first for the other guy. And then for himself. And from that day on, it never happened again until finally that neighbor came to him and said, what was it that caused you to do that for me? And he was able to explain about how he was a Christian. And this man eventually came to faith in Christ. Because in humility, he did not insist on his own rights, but he put the interest of his neighbor above his own. It will help you to grow in humility, I think, if you remember that you contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that makes it necessary. And that you had nothing to your ongoing sanctification, but the sin that continues to make your salvation necessary. How can you be proud? It's a contradiction, and yet it's a contradiction that does live in the heart of a Christian. Sin indwells me. It's, as well, a sin for which I need Jesus. And ironically, I think, as well, the more you realize your pride and ask Jesus to save you and change you and help you, the more humble you're actually being. And the less you see your pride, the more proud you are. The fact that you don't know you're proud is evidence that you are very proud indeed, says Lewis. So we're we're to have humility here. It would help if you considered your own sin. We're to have gentleness. This word gentleness here is used of domesticated animals. Not a wild or untamed You know, rabid dog, barking, jumping, growling, snarling, biting people. But rather strength under control. Not weakness, but strength. But under control, the gentle use 
of your strength. Not like a bully who picks on weaker people, who intimidates people, who uses his strength to harm them instead of help them, who uses his wit to belittle them instead of building them up, but but gentle and patient with aggravating people. Cut people slack, he's saying. Take a long-term view. Other believers are a work in progress. So are we. There's no quick fix. And you're going to be injured by them if you're trying to love them. If you're trying to stay away from them, you may never be hurt by anybody. But if you're close, you have to be long-suffering. And if you've been offended by them, listen to this, friends. God has given you the opportunity to show this kind of love. And if you avoid people so that you're never offended, protect yourself by isolation. It means you are avoiding opportunities to become more like God himself, who is long-suffering with us. And I think here it helps to remember that the way we treated Jesus is far worse than anybody has ever treated us. And he forgave us. And he didn't crush us. And he doesn't get easily irritated with you and write you off. He bears with you and loves you. And I'm not saying you have to confuse patience with indifference as though it doesn't mean you shouldn't care about what's happening. Or, or, that, or that you shouldn't take steps even to stop something that's happening if it shouldn't be happening. That's not what we're saying here. But when you do, can you do it in a long-suffering kind of way? Love puts up with people without constant rebuke and constant correction. And I'm as guilty as a parent of anything if I'm guilty of that. There's a time and place for that, of course, rebuke and correction, generally measured out in ten parts to one. Ten parts, positive, encouraging, affirming, loving words for one word of criticism. Just a perhaps a wise rule of thumb there. Paul doesn't say it that way. But don't imagine that any of this is a sign of weakness. In the Greek world, it was. Humility and gentleness was considered weak. Aristotle defined the Greek virtue, if I have this right, as the refusal to tolerate any insult or injury and a readiness to strike back at any hurt. That was a virtue. He said a man stands up for himself. Right? Paul's saying that love means you've got to allow yourself to be heartbroken by people. They're going to disappoint you time and again. Well, if this all seems absolutely incredible, and it is, How could anybody ever live like this? And this is just our last question then. How how do we as Christians begin even to live like this? Well, notice his language here. Go back to chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I think that expression is the key to this, friends. Here's the calling to which you have already been called. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. You remember Paul's language here? He chose you in him before the foundation of the world, that you should be holy and blameless before him. He determined that you were going to be one day perfectly blameless forever with him. That is your destiny. That is your God-determined destiny. And what has he done to get you there? 
In love, he adopted you into his family. In love, he gave his own son to redeem you from your sins so that he could release you from your sins and the guilt and the punishment you deserve. And he sent the Holy Spirit into your life and he made you alive with Christ and he brought you into his new family, new community, and he promised you are going to be like Jesus. You have received an incredible calling. And in this calling, God, in giving you life, isn't trying to make a horse just jump better or jump higher, but he's turning a, turning a horse into a winged creature, and he's, he's making you learn to fly, and he's equipping you to do that. What happens if I don't live out this new life of grace to others because I've received grace from God? What if I don't? Well, you know how the solar system works, right? It's held together by gravitational pole of the sun, and all the planets orbit around this common center. What would happen if suddenly Mercury and Venus and Earth and Mars and Jupiter and Saturn and the rest began to orbit around themselves? Their self-orbits would result in chaos and collision and catastrophe. And that's what has happened to us as a people, as a humanity. We've been orbiting around ourselves, colliding with one another, instead of orbiting around God. And, and so he says, with an eye towards the calling that you have received, the calling with which you've been called, with an eye towards what God has done and promised to do, you have to work this out. You know what will happen to you if you don't have an eye towards God? When you try to work this out, if you don't have a sense of what he's done and he's going to do, but you, but you commit yourself to the task of being like this, out of simply a desire, you know, for just a better church life or a better home life or, you know, I want to clean things up, calm things down, make life better for me and for the people around me. If, if our eye is only on ourselves and not on God and what he's done, then we're doing it for ourselves and not for the sake of the gospel. And then we will discover that our great motivation has been to simply have a better life. And eventually we might make strides at that personally, but the more strides you make in that direction for you, the more you will grow irritated and angry with everybody else who's not putting in the time and working as hard to make those same strides. I'm bearing with them, but they're not bearing with me. That's what you'll begin to say to yourself if your eye is on you. And you'll learn to hate them in your heart, even as you think I'm working hard to do what I'm supposed to do towards them. You'll end up trying to control them and manipulate them. Or you'll simply walk away because they're an obstacle obstacle to your peace. I, I just described the history of divorce in America. And that happens in churches all the time. What this means, friends, is you and I have got to die to ourselves and die to insisting on our rights. We have to die to ourselves in order to love others with an eye fixed towards God and what he's doing for us and done for us. Where do you get the love to love people like this? You get it from being loved like this. With an eye to what God has called you to. Think of the most difficult person you know to get along with. You are a thousand times worse in God's eyes than that person is in yours. But he loves you and he bears with you. And while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you, Romans 8, or Romans 5. 
And his love for you wasn't based on your loveliness. His love was just the opposite. With eyes wide open, he looked at you and he knew you were his enemy. That you couldn't care less about him. That you were an extremely unlovely person. That there was nothing he could gain in loving you. And he loved you. That's how he loves. And he calls you to love. And doesn't that just highlight how unloving we are? Let that drive your need of him. Let that drive you back to this. In love, he predestined me for adoption into his family. Chapter 2, verse 7, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved me, made me alive together with Christ. Let the love of Christ for you drive your love for others. Let's pray.